Friends, welcome to RUF. Uh, thanks for making out. I know it's a busy uh, midterm week and right before spring break, so we are really glad that you are here tonight. Uh, if you have been with us, you know we're working our way through the book of Exodus. Uh, we're calling our series Storied, the Gospel According to Exodus. And tonight we're diving into really a, ch- a chunk of scripture. We're looking at the plagues. So we're going to look at uh, just a few verses, but really we're covering chapter 7 through chapter 10. We're going to save the last plague uh, for the week when we get back from spring break. So we're going to kind of look at them really all in one. We're not going to take them one by one. We're going to look at them all as one kind of narrative, all as one story. So to do that, if you have your handout with you, we're going to look at uh, really just chapter 7, 8 to 13, and then skip to chapter 10 and do the first two verses. So follow along in your handout or in your Bible with me. Exodus chapter 7. Starting in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they... The magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. We're getting into some Harry Potter stuff. It's amazing. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then skip down to chapter 10, just verses 1 and 2. So the plagues have all been building. We're getting to the last plague, the plague of darkness. And right before that, here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses... Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Let me pray for us, and I want to kind of dive into, I think, what's going to be an interesting but maybe difficult night. So let's pray first and ask the Lord's help. Father, we are grateful to be here. Uh, we, we are looking forward to the rest of next week, uh, the rest that we are longing for and, and really need. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would invite us into that true rest tonight, the true rest of the gospel that says, even though we have worked ourselves, we have served idols, we are burdened and enslaved to so many sins, yet you are the one who has come to free us. You are the one who came that we might be delivered and rescued You are the one who came by a show of judgment and of uh, unbelievable grace. Lord, at the cross, you have shown us your love for us. And Jesus, we listen to your words tonight as you invite us, anyone who is heavy burdened or heavy laden, to come to you, that we can come to you tonight and find the rest that our souls are craving and longing for. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that in our midst tonight, that you would give us that deep soul rest that we are longing for. Uh, in your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So the last couple of nights have been interesting. Uh, Caroline came over. There was a little, I don't know if you followed it or not, but HBO did a two-part documentary series called Leaving Neverland. It was the painful story of two victims of uh, Michael Jackson's abuse, uh, the abuse they experienced as children. It really is rock if you followed it on Twitter or just followed it on the internet. It's kind of rock. Michael Jackson, I didn't realize, has all of these defenders who maintain his innocence. But if these victims are to be believed, the stories that they tell are really horrific. The stories that they experienced uh, at his hands as children, the sexual abuse that they experienced. And as I was watching it and thinking about that part of my own story, and I know uh, there are surely stories in this room uh, of sexual abuse, and just thinking about how it works, 
And in this case, how it works, when you have a man who we really, the, the whole documentary kept saying, we don't really know celebrities like Michael Jackson at his peak. Like we have Beyonce, you know, we have Bieber, maybe we have, you know, I don't we'll pick your celebrity, but it wasn't like MJ at the peak of his, of his being. He really was. These guys kept saying he was like our God. You know, we worshiped him. We wanted to be him. And the question I kept wrestling with is thinking of a person in that position of power in that position of just, just power is the best word. And the question becomes, how, how, do, how is he going to use that power? And in this case, he used that power. If these men are to be believed, to be believed, and I think they are, he used that power to do great harm. And the documentary shows you the harm that it not only did in their lives, but the harm it did in their families' lives and the lives of so many people. And that's the question I want to kind of come into the plagues thinking about is, is what, what do we do with our power? And really more specifically, the plagues are all about God's power. It really is the power of God coming up against the power of, of Pharaoh and of Egypt. And what is his power? How is he going to use his power? We're going to see in the plagues that his power is unmatchable. We're just saying he, he is peerless in terms of his worth. He is peerless in terms of his power. But how does God use the power that he alone holds? And the way I want to think about it is just three things, like any good RUF sermon, three points. I want to talk about the power of his freedom. I want to talk about the power of his judgment of sin. And the last thing I want to talk about is the power of his rescuing mercy, the power of his salvation. So first, let's look at a little bit of the power of his freedom. So the reason, the reason I included chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, is if you read through the plague stories, and if you've read through the book of Exodus, I don't know if you've had this experience, but the first time I read the plague story in particular, it is confusing in this specific sense. In the first five plagues that God brings on Egypt, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. But then in the last five plagues, that's why I started in chapter 10, you get a little picture of it. It says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I'll never get reading that for the first time thinking, whoa, hold on. Really? Or as my son would say, what? <laughs> what do we do with this sort of Thing that Exodus is telling us about God. We, we know, we, we talk about God's sovereignty. We talk about his, his freedom to do what he wishes, but we're really, does he really, what does it mean that he hardened Pharaoh's heart? And I don't want to get into big conversation tonight about Arminianism and Calvinism. There's different, if you want to talk about that, we can grab coffee. What I want you to see is something important that Exodus is showing us in the plague narrative is that God really does have the freedom to do in our lives what he alone pleases. And I don't know when the first time you've wrestled with that. Maybe this is the first time. But it is a humbling and painful and offensive thought. To think, I was just processing with a friend. We were talking about this, how God had done some painful things in his life through a breakup. And he said, for the first time, I've come up against this idea that God really can do in my life whatever he wants. And, I, and he said, and it was a, a beautiful one. He said, I've just realized in these last four or five months how out of control I really am. What do we do with that? I think God is showing us uh, when he calls himself the I am, we've talked about this, that he's declaring his independence from us, but he's also saying that he alone has the right to do in our lives whatever pleases him. Uh, the first time I ever really started to wrestle with this idea was I was with friends. They had all become reformed. I didn't even know what that word meant. And we were hanging out. This was right as I was graduating college. And they were trying to convince me that my theology was flawed. Maybe some of you have been in these conversations from both sides. Uh, Usually when you first become reformed, you have what we call a cage stage where you're just mean. It's like you're an animal let out of the cage. And your goal in life is to prove that everyone who's not reformed is just 
dumb, basically. So my friends were kind of in this stage. So they had me over and they're like, let's just read the Bible. Let's read Romans 9. And I was like, yeah, I've read Romans 9. And we read through it and I'm like, oh, because in that passage, Paul literally, he quotes the Exodus story. And he says, as he thinks about God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and he says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And I hated it so much. Like, I, I mean, I left. At one point, my friend said, Sam, you just need to read the Bible more. And I was like, homeboy, I have read the Bible every day of my life since I was a Christian. And yet that text was so hard and I was wrestling with it. And I think that's a simple point we can make is if, if, you, if you're not reading scripture or if you're not at points getting offended by the Bible, if you're not at points getting mad or frustrated by the Bible, then you're probably not really reading it. And that's kind of the plague narrative for us. So what do we do with it? Well, here's the best that I've got. There's a guy that is commentary. He's been super helpful in this conversation. Here's what he says. His name is Pete Enns. It's a little bit long, but bear with me because I think this, this point is really profound for us. He says this, attention that all Christians deal with sooner or later is having an understanding of God while at the same time recognizing that he is always open to directions that we have not yet anticipated. This tension is often difficult to hold in balance, but it is one that all Christians must try to respect. Knowledge of God is a powerful commodity, which is why it is so susceptible to abuse. It is always a temptation to think that you understand who God is and how he works. God has revealed himself to us, to be sure, and most clearly in his son. But too often, listen, too often the wonder of his revelation is reduced to a narrow dogmatism that has everything in its place. It is the kind of faith that favors heated theological debate rather than unity and love. Yet, there are others for whom the Christian life is shrouded in mystery to the point that dogma is an intrusion. Such a view emphasizes the mystery of the gospel so that its revelatory content is not taken seriously. The lessons of the plague narrative, here's what the point is, the lessons of the plague narrative are a merciful slap in the face to both these extremes. They cannot be contained in a series, and this is what kills, kills me and kills us, they cannot be contained in a series of tidy propositions handed down to us like a math formula or a grocery list. We have in the Bible at once the openness of God in his, and his hiddenness. We should be humble in our knowledge, for we are dealing with a God of boundless depth, who has creation at his fingertips. But we must also be bold in our limited understanding, for the same God has gone to great lengths to make himself known to us. Do you see that tension, though? It's the tension of of pretending like you know exactly, you know everything about who God is and what he's doing in your life. And this, this is a text that claps back. This is a text that slaps that. And on the other hand, this is a text that says we do know who God is, that this is what Exodus is about. God is revealing himself, that he is showing himself to us. And yet there are mysteries in our finite understanding that we have to hold carefully and humbly. I love there's a letter uh, a couple years ago. I was working my way through in in good English nerd fashion through Flannery O'Connor's letters, which are fascinating. It's called The Habit of Being. And she's writing. She wrote this one letter. I'll never forget. It really rocked my world. She was writing to a friend who was asking about the question of hell. She really had a problem with a God who, would, who does hell or believes in hell. And it was fascinating to see the way Flannery O'Connor answered. If she Basically, she didn't get into, she said, we have to understand and deal with what the Bible shows us and tells us. But here's what she said to her friend, Louise Abbott. She said, whatever you do anyway, remember that these things are mysteries. 
And that if they were enough that they were such that we could understand them, they wouldn't be worth understanding. And then she said a line that I think would make an incredible tattoo. Uh, this is my, my goal for this year. Well, my goal approaching 40 is to find a tattoo that works for me. So if you've got suggestions, I'm open. This is on the table. A God you understand, a God you understood, would be less than yourself. A God you understood would be less than yourself. And what I want us to feel and see in this plague narrative is the bigness of God and the, free, the power of his freedom. That he is much bigger than you and I walked in this room tonight thinking he is. And he is much more worthy, peerless in his, not just his worth, but peerless in his power. And this is why I think the application here is, I think the tr- this, this is why we talk about what is the truest mark of what a Christian is. And I think a lot of us would say, when I was a young Christian, I would say boldness. on being on fire for Jesus. Uh, at one point in my life, I would have said, how many people have you shared your faith with this week? How many people have you evangelized? Have you been talking to people in your dorms, your classes? Uh, then it became, have you read your Bible? How, how often, how consistent have you been in your quiet times? And we use these things. Are you avoiding the right things? Are you avoiding saying those words or drinking those drinks or doing those things? And we kind of think that's the mark of a Christian. And can I say that the first point in, in the plague narrative is the first mark, the truest mark of a Christian is humility. The truest mark of a Christian is saying, I, God, I love God, I know him, and yet I am limited in my understanding. I don't know, I don't always know what he's doing in my life or in your life. I don't always know what he's up to. It, it brings humility in us. But, so the plagues, first, they show us the power of God's freedom. And then second, they show us the power of his judgment against sin. This is the other thing we have to see in the plagues is that God is judging Egypt for their sins. And what I want you to see on the one hand is God isn't randomly choosing. When you look through all the plagues, he's not just randomly choosing them like, like a Voldemort who's scrambling to kind of show something. It's fascinating that each of the plagues was actually specifically about an Egyptian god and their claims to what they did for people or what they could bring into people's lives, their dominion or their power or their blessing. And each of the plagues is God sort of saying, saying these are idols. I am the one true God. But on the other hand, he's doing something else is he's showing them. And he's showing us through these plagues what sin is and does and how it unravels the fabric of creation. He's showing his judgment, right judgment, against injustice and against our sin, against our disobedience, against the ways we defy him and steal his glory. Again, I love the way my guy Peter says it. He says this, the plagues are creation reversals. Think about this. The plagues are creation reversals. Animals harm Rather than serve humanity, light ceases and darkness takes over. Waters become a source of death rather than life. And the climax of Genesis 1 is the creation of humans on the last day, whereas the climax of the plagues we're going to look at in two weeks is the destruction of human beings in the last plague. But what I want you to see is that when we sin, we aren't just sinning against God, we aren't just sinning against each other, and in a sense, we aren't just sinning against ourselves. But when we sin, we're going against the very fabric of created being, of creation itself. I think about uh, a few years ago, I had a shirt. There was a, a moment I was going to a movie, but I'd done that thing where I'd like, you know, you get like a stray thread on your shirt and you sort of think, I can pull this and it's going to be fine. Well, that day I pulled it. Uh, thankfully, I was in five points. I think I was leaving Starbucks. I pulled it 
and like my whole shirt came unwrapped, like my whole button fell off and I just had this like exposed and I was like, I can't go out into the world just showing my body because that would be weird for a lot of reasons. Um, so I like went to Walgreens, got a little, little sew kit and, and patched my button back up together. And I was like, oh, I can sew <laughs> like a true Proverbs 31 man. Um, but when we sin, part of what the plagues are saying and showing is that when we sin, it's like we're unraveling what create. We're unraveling creation. We're unraveling the way things are supposed to be. We're unraveling the way that life works. We're unraveling the love and honor we're supposed to show each other. We're, we're unraveling what it looks like to live fully alive, a life given to God. We're unraveling creation. That's where thinking about the MJ documentary. I feel like I'm in a season where Alyssa and I are watching all these painful documentaries. In Enneagram, I am a type four, so part of me is here for it, 100%. I love the darkness. We could talk about that. But uh, part of what these documentaries, so the ones that we've watched in succession are the R. Kelly one, that if you haven't seen that one, was really disturbing. Uh, the second one we watched at our intern suggestion was Abducted in Plain Sight, which will just make you scream at the TV. And I really do think if you're watching Abducted in Plain Sight with someone of the opposite sex and they're not also screaming at the TV, that is your first sign. Do not date them. They are not marriage material. And then the third one is the Michael Jackson one. And it's, it really has come home to me that part of this moment, we call it a culture of outrage, and we can talk about how quick we are to judge, how quick we are to show our anger online, but not do anything about it in real life. But can I say maybe one of the good things that comes from it is we're starting to grapple with the way sin affects other people. We're starting to grapple with the idea that my sin matters because it does you harm, and your sin matters because it does me harm. And these documentaries show how these, these powerful celebrities, these figures— uh, these predators, how what they did in those moments caused so much vast destruction. And that's part of what the plagues are saying. It's God coming up in his holiness against what sin does in the unraveling of creation. Um, the plagues aren't just a show of God's freedom, but they're also a, really a wake-up call for coming judgment. They're a wake-up call that your sin and my sin matters to God. That he really does, in his holiness, have to do something with it and about it. And so it's an invitation to repentance. And I think part of what happens when we think about one of the answers, if you were asking me, what the deal between Pharaoh hardening his heart and God hardening his heart, the only thing I could even say, there's a lot that I don't know and can't say, but the one thing I can say is it's really a picture of what Paul says in Romans 1. That there's a way of continuing in sin. There's a way of continuing in a life lived Define who God is and what he does, that you begin to get given over to it. And you be, there becomes a point where repentance, the, the promise of repentance isn't guaranteed. And yet we know that the, these wake-up calls are invitations to, to trust and turn to the Lord. Um, I think about, there was a guy my senior year of high school, a guy that like transferred in for the, the senior year, and he was totally not our school in beautiful ways. Like He just had lived a rough life. And he had the first tattoo I ever saw, and it was just a, a Tupac quote. Uh, just, just said it was on his arm. It just said, "Only God can judge me." And it was kind of amazing because he just had like none of us had defied our teachers, but he kind of came in and was like, "What's up? I don't care about any of you, so I'm going to do anything I please." And part of me respected it because I was like, "Man, you are doing you in a way that is beautiful." But it was interesting because I knew what he, I know what that quote means. Only God can judge me. There's something that's right about that. That only God can truly judge me. It doesn't matter what you think. It only matters what he thinks. But then the plagues are saying, 
But do you want God to judge you? This holy being who, who has to, if he is anything at all righteous, he has to stand against the cancer that is sin. And the plagues are showing us uh, the power of his holiness, his, the power of his judgment against sin. But they don't leave us there. The last thing I want you to see is they also, they don't show us the power of his freedom. They don't just show us the power of his judgment against sin, but they also show us the power of his salvation. What's fascinating is, is the last thing that we, we have to see about the plagues is they're not just shows of those things, but there's a pattern here. That the plagues are actually not just a show of judgment, that they are actually also the means of his people's salvation. Do you see that? That part of God doing these plagues is to free his people. That part of him showing them not just his freedom and his judgment, but it's also the means by which they are going to be freed and delivered out of their slavery and out of their bondage. Um, the only way for God to free his people, we could say, like, like this, was to judge the sin that was so enslaving them and dominating them. And in this case, it's the sin of Egypt against them. And we're back to that question. God is he's showing us his great power. But how is he going to use that power? And I want you to see that if you, the first place where you begin to know God truly is that you see he begins to use his power for the good of his people. That he begins to use his power to not just show judgment, but to bring mercy. And the plagues show us that no one accomplishes salvation like him. Part of what he's saying is you have looked to these Egyptian gods to save you. And let me show you how much they can't save you. And for us, you have looked to the idols of approval and relationship and grades and getting the best job you can get and getting the best internship you can get and all kinds of substances, all kinds of things. And God is saying, but they are powerless to save. And yet, here I am in my power, powerful to save. And this is where we begin to think about Jesus. We can't read the Exodus. We've said this whole time without through the lens of Jesus and this is why when Jesus comes out of Egypt, think with me for a second. Remember, he's brought out of Egypt. He's brought back and he starts to begin his ministry. And he begins with his miracles, which in the words of Les Newsom are like the unplagues. Because they are shows of power, but they are shows of power not against sin necessarily. They are shows of power for healing. If the plagues are about the reversal of creation, then what Jesus' miracles are about are about the, the beauty and the grace of recreation. And Jesus begins, he begins his ministry of healing and resurrection, but then it's more. As Jesus gets to the cross, it's fascinating how the Gospels tell the account, because two things happen that you think, if you know the Bible, you think plagues, plagues, plagues. Here, The first one is in the sixth hour. If you remember the story, darkness covers the land. Just complete darkness as Jesus is on the cross. And then as Jesus is about to cry out and give up his spirit and say it is finished, at the twelfth hour or the ninth hour, do you remember the scene? Rocks begin to split, and the entire earth begins to shake. And we have to see is that Jesus is facing the ultimate plague for us. The question of Scripture is always, how is this God of judgment also going to be a God of mercy? And at the cross, we see what we see how that Jesus faces the plague of judgment that our sin deserves. And he faces it on our behalf that we might be freed, that we might be saved. I love the way Tim Chester says it. He says it like this. At the cross, the plagues fall on Jesus. At the cross, the maker came to be unmade so that we can be remade. 
The maker came to be unmade so that we can be remade. The son was unraveled under the judgment of the father. He experienced chaos, darkness, and death. As Jesus died, the rock split and the earth shook. It was the ultimate moment of uncreation. Why? That you and I might be recreated. That you and I might be brought out of Egypt, home to the promised land of life with the Father, life with Jesus. How will God use his power? That's the question we've been asking. Here's the answer. He uses his power to bring judgment for our sins upon him who knew no sin. That you and I who are sinners might become the righteousness of God. God uses, we could say like this, God uses his power to bear judgment that he might bring and give mercy. That he might bring and give forgiveness. So the, the plagues show us not just the power of his freedom and not just the power of his judgment against sin, but also the power of his grace. The power that he is a God, the only God we've ever heard of who bears judgment that he might bring mercy. Close with this. I, I think uh, if, if you've been in RFL, you've no doubt heard this illustration because it's my favorite one. But it's that scene in Harry Potter, Chamber of Secrets, where Dobby... He's like heard of, he's visiting Harry Potter for the first time. You know the scene. He's heard the spell has been broken against Voldemort. He knows Harry Potter is his special. He's the anointed one, whatever we want to call him. And it's that scene that I always think about when I think about holding these things in tension. Where Harry begins talking about uh, winning Dobby's freedom and, and helping Dobby gain his freedom. And Dobby in that beautiful line says, Dobby has heard of your greatness, sir. But of your goodness, Dobby never knew. Dobby has heard of your greatness, but of your goodness, he never knew. And can I say, we have to hold those things in tension, right? Have you heard of God's power, his freedom, and his holiness? If not, his, his, his goodness will never mean anything to you, because you won't really think it applies to you, or you really don't need it that much. But a lot of you are the opposite. You've heard a ton about his power. You've heard a ton about his holiness. But have you ever heard of his grace? Have you ever heard of the only God, Brendan Manning likes to say, the only God we've ever heard of that loves sinners and uses his power not to judge them, but to save them? Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would bring home your gospel to us tonight, both the, the judgment and just the justice that our sins deserve truly and rightly, the ways that we have hurt you, hurt your heart, hurt one another. But at the same time, Lord, please do not leave us there. Bring your conviction, but also show us the beauty and the glory of your grace, of the one named Jesus who bore judgment in our place, that we might know life and have the promise of being recreated from the inside out. Lord, we need this. We need, whether we um, I've heard this for the first time or the millionth time. We need you to come in power and bring this home to our hearts. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Please stand and sing with me that good old tune, the doxology. I'll kick us off. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
you guys so much for coming out to RUF. Please have a great spring break, and we'll see you in two weeks. Time coming. So, do you have time? Do you get time off next week or not? <laughs>